Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek, and have a seat. Good to be with you today. As I said, my name is Travis, and the pastor here, and it is good to be worshiping with you. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are so thankful and so glad that you are here worshiping as our guest today, and, and I, I would uh, love if you could do me just one favor. You mind stopping by our welcome table right out there that we have. Uh, there's a free gift we'd love to put in your hands as just a way to show appreciation, and we also have a little welcome card if you don't mind filling that out. Uh, those come back to me, and it gives me a chance to reach out and just say thank you for your visits. If you do me that favor, I would appreciate that. And before we get started, I just want to share one announcement with you. Uh, this is, has been in our weekly email. We've been announcing it for a couple weeks. We're going to continue to do that uh, until it launches. But uh, we, we are starting a new women's Bible study starting at the end of February. It'll be hosted and led by my wife, Kendra, uh, at our house. And it's going to be a Jen Wilkins study walking through the New Testament books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we meet weekly on Wednesday nights starting on February 28th for 10 weeks. Um, and again, walking through that study. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be phenomenal. So if, if you are interested at all in signing up for that, I would encourage you to go ahead and do so um, as soon as possible so that we can get an accurate number and go ahead and start getting workbooks ready for that because uh, it takes a little bit for those to come in. So if you could sign up, uh, you can do that. Can we put that screen back up there? Sorry, man. I'm, I'm hanging out here for a second. Uh, if you want my sign up, you can go to hanescreek.com abide or you can click on the link in our weekly email. If you don't get those weekly emails and you want to, let me know and I can add you to that list. And uh, church, we are going to continue on in our series through Philippians. So we jumped back into that last week. We, we looked at the first three verses of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick right back up in verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, it's all good. You can follow along on the screen behind me. We also have Bibles at, those ta at that table uh, in the hallway. Please grab one of those as our gift to you. But Philippians chapter 3, and just kind of recap where we were last week. So Paul starts out in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, reminding his audience and us today of the thing that he's been saying over and over again through Philippians, and we'll do so even more, and that is that we are to rejoice in the Lord. And when Paul writes that, he writes it as a command. We are commanded to have joy in Christ as believers. And he can say that, and he can command that of us, because joy is different than happiness, right? Joy is different than any fleeting emotion that we base on our circumstances, right? If life is good, family's good, jobs are good, we're happy. The minute that changes, well, now we're unhappy, or we're frustrated, or we're angry, and, and it changes, right? Emotions can change based on our circumstances, but joy in Christ should never change, because joy is, is an anchor centered on Jesus, centered on who he is and what he's done for us, and that never changes. And the promises of Christ never change, so we can have joy regardless of what our circumstances are because it's centered in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And, and Paul can write these things even though he's sitting chained up to a Roman guard 24-7, awaiting trial before Caesar, who could kill Paul at any moment, right? He could just at the whim just be like, no, don't like this guy, kill him. Even though Paul's done nothing wrong, even though he was unjustly arrested, he's been in prison for years now, and he can say, have joy. So if Paul can have joy in those circumstances, we can in our circumstances as well. So Paul starts out in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, reminding us of that truth, and it's a central theme in Philippians. He's already said it several times, and he's going to say it several more times, right? That's a big deal. And we said that this kind of starts off a new section where, where Paul is digging into more of this type of doctrine and theology and centered on who we are in Christ and how that should impact our daily lives. So he starts out 
in chapter 3, warning us one of the ways that we can rejoice in Jesus and have joy in him is to stay away from false teachers. And he warns us of the false teachers that were just kind of permeating the church at this time. And one of the primary false teachings that was out there was being led by a group called the Judaizers. And we talked about that last week. And these were Jewish Christians who had put their faith in Jesus, but they were teaching a false gospel. They were saying to have salvation, it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus following the Old Testament Jewish law, and that's what got you salvation. And Paul said to come up behind these folks and be like, no, 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 that, that's not at all what's going on, right? So he warns us of following and being led astray by false teaching. And then he says that in order to stay away from that, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of who we are in Christ, right? We are the people of God. We worship and serve him. We boast or glory or find our joy and satisfaction in Christ. And and then he ends verse 3 by saying that as believers, we do not put confidence in the flesh. And we talked a little bit about what that meant last week. And Paul here in verses 4 through 9 is going to build on that idea. And he's going to walk through a significant change in his life that, that at one point he was living with confidence in the flesh and then something changed and now he's not. And we have these moments of change in our lives, right? They can be significant, maybe addition of a new family member, a new baby, child, all that kind of good stuff, a new job, a new move, big changes like that. Or they they can be small changes, right? We all have these moments of change. There was a a change that happened in my life a few years ago when we had our second child, Livy. So we had our first son, Zayden. We adopted him at birth, and uh, he was ours. And then six months later, along comes Livy. So we, at that point, I'm 30 years old, and we have two kids six and a half months, and then newborn. And at that point of my life, at the age of 30, I had never been a coffee drinker. Never. Never once. I mean, I tried it. It was gross. Didn't want it. Didn't need it. No thanks. And I stayed strong. It was one of those things that like, oh yeah, I'm the guy that doesn't drink coffee around here. Like, and all my friends, everybody was like, coffee, coffee, coffee. And as a pastor, you meet people for coffee all the time. So it's like, here I am at 6 a.m. in a Starbucks, and somebody's drinking coffee. like, you want anything? I'm like, no, I'm good. I don't drink coffee. And so everybody was like, no, man, you got you to have coffee. You got to have coffee. So along comes Livy. We've got two uh, infants, six months and under, and now, now I need coffee. <laughs> now I've been, you know, no sleep for six months, and now again we're just starting this cycle all over again with another newborn. So, like, I need something to get me going. So I started drinking coffee at that. Oh, this is, I'm 37 now. That was seven years ago, and now I am a regular coffee drinker. It was a change in my life. And I'll never forget the, the first Sunday. So I was pastoring at a church in Buford. The first Sunday I came to church with a Starbucks cup in my hand. Our lead pastor, who had been trying to get me to drink coffee for years and years and years, he sees me walking. He's like, what are you doing? what is that? I'm like, oh, I'm a coffee drinker now. And he took that as a personal victory. Like, he's like, oh, finally, I've, I've convinced you. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, it's the second baby at home. That's what convinced me. And I remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I, Livy and the kids were off of school. It was Christmas break or whatever. And I bring Livy. We had to go get something at Kroger that morning. And there's a Starbucks inside our Kroger. And so I'm like, you know, she was already bored. It was like 8.30 in the morning. She's already bored. So I'm like, you're coming with me. We're going to the store. You're coming with me. Kendra's like, hey, get some coffee on your way home. So I stopped. I went to Starbucks, got some coffee. And Livy the whole time's like, why do we need this? Why do you need coffee? Why do you need coffee? And the whole time I'm thinking, you, you're the reason I need coffee. You, children are the reason parents drink coffee, right? She doesn't understand that. She's like, I don't, I don't get this. But anyways, that was a big change in my life, right? Was, uh, we have these moments of change in our life, and Paul digs into this significant change that happens all because of Jesus. So let's dig into Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. It says this. So remember, at the end of verse 3, he says, do not put confidence in the flesh. We as believers do not put confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 4, he says this, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, 
Regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I considered everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Okay, so we'll stop there for today. So, so Paul, again, he, he's building off where he left us in verse 3, talking about this idea of confidence in the flesh. And here he tells us exactly why we as believers don't put our confidence in the flesh. And he does this by sharing his personal tor- his story, his personal testimony, right? He walks through his background, his accomplishments as an example for us to learn from. He, and he lays it all out, right? He lays all out all the reasons that he, as Paul, could and should have had confidence in the flesh. And then he talks about what that actually gained him. And then he compares that to Jesus and what Jesus brings him. So he traces this idea of placing our confidence in the flesh and how things changed for Paul, right? He used to base his righteousness as standing before God on his accomplishments, on his background. And now he places it in Jesus. His confidence is now in Jesus, and his righteousness is based on Jesus and what Jesus has done. So we're going to walk through Paul's description here and his change and how all this happened. So, so to, to make his point, Paul shares, again, his previous way of living, which was based in self-righteousness, and then what changed and how he now lives in Jesus' righteousness. So let, let's walk through this passage. So he, he starts out here. The first thing that we're going to talk about is Paul's previous self-righteousness. Paul's previous self-righteousness. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. That's the first thing that Paul talks about, his previous life of self-righteousness. Look at verse 4 again. I love how he starts out here. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's talking, again, to the false teachers. Like, you want people to put confidence in the flesh, to have confidence in what they've done. He's like, if anybody could do that and should do that, it's me. It's Paul, right? You got confidence in the flesh? I've got even more. And then he he lists out uh, how he's got all these guys beat with his earthly, fleshly accomplishments. So he he walks through his background and then his own personal accomplishments. So his background. Look at what Paul lists just as his background. So he says in verse 5, he circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. This is all about Paul's background and upbringing here. So he says that he circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why is that a big deal? Again, circumcision was, was the point of contention here. The Judaizers were saying it's Jesus, salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. That's what gets you salvation. And we, we saw last week, and go back and listen to the sermon, we traced the, the idea of circumcision, it goes all the way back to this promise of God to Abraham. When Abraham gave him the covenant, he's going to build the nation of Israel out of Abraham. He says, one of the signs that I'm giving you, one of the things I'm telling you to do is to circumcise all of your males going forward on the eighth day. Now, by this point, the practice in Judaism was like, okay, eighth day, that's a, that's a, 
you know, that's, that's, a, that's a goal, but it's not necessarily you have to, if you don't, if you do it on day nine, well then, you know, why even do it at all? Like, so there was this kind of like, you know, it's it, the idea of it's important to circumcise. The date is not necessarily as big a deal, but Paul's saying here like, no, 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 man, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What he's pointing out is even, even at the beginning of his life, he started out with strict adherence to the law. So saying, no, no, man, like, I, I, I followed the law exactly. My parents did it the right way. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And then he says, not only that, but he's of the nation of Israel. What that literally means is the race of Israel. Paul was an Israelite. Now, by this point throughout Jewish history, there was this practice of Gentiles becoming essentially Jewish disciples, right? The word that was used was proselyte during this time. So Gentiles could become and worship as a Jewish person, right? They could worship in the Jewish religion and follow the Jewish ways of doing things, right? And they could be accepted, you know, a little bit into the people of God. And, And to do that, they had to do exactly what we talked about last week. They had to get circumcised and they had to follow the Old Testament law. But they were still Gentiles, Right? And they were still, in some ways, outsiders. And Paul says, not me, man. I'm not a proselyte. I'm not a Gentile. My parents aren't Gentiles. I am a Jew. Through and through, man. I am of the race of the Jewish people. Right? He, was a, he was a pure Israelite. I have a Harry Potter joke in there, but I'm going to spare you guys of that and just know that I love Harry Potter. Now, I'm a total nerd when it comes to that, but I, you know, I, I won't embarrass myself any more than that. But just know I had a joke there. So he's of the race of Israel. Then he says that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why would he list his tribe, right? Like those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that that Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons were what became the 12 tribes of Israel, and Benjamin is one of those. So why would Paul brag about the tribe that he's in? What's going on there? Well, let's, you know, just kind of do a little history lesson on Benjamin. So why would this be a point of pride? Well, for one, Benjamin was one of the two beloved sons of Jacob, right? Jacob Great guy in many ways, but definitely had his favorites. And he had his favorites from his wives and his children. So his favored wife was Rachel. He loved her more than Leah. We're told that throughout his story. And then they had 12 sons, Leah having the bulk of those. And then Rachel, his beloved wife, had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And those were by far Jacob's favorites. So Benjamin already started out in a place of prominence within his own family just by being born of a certain woman. So already he's, he's up there. And then what we find out is that uh, he was the only son actually born in the promised land. So again, he's got a leg up on some of his other brothers, man. He could be like, dude, I was, y'all were born elsewhere, man. I was born in the promised land. So that was a point of pride. We also know from history that, that the first king of Israel, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul, if you remember, his, his Hebrew name is Saul. Most believe that he was named after the first king of Israel. And also what we know from the Old Testament is that Benjamin was one of the two tribes that remained loyal to the family line of David. So King Saul, first king of Israel, disobeyed God. God removed him from being king, removed his family line from being king, and raised up David and gave David the promise that David's line would be reigning as king forever, right? So that was the promise. It was all David's line. All the kings were to come from David's line. Well, then you got David, and then Solomon took over after David, and then after Solomon, man, his son was kind of a knucklehead, kind of screwed things up, and there was this split in the kingdom. There was this, this struggle of power, and there was a split. And we know that in the Old Testament. You see the talk of, of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, the southern kingdom was made up of Judah, 
That's, the, that's where David was from. That's the line of the kings were to come from the tribe of Judah, the family line of David. And the only other tribe that was loyal to David's line and the tribe of Judah was Benjamin, was the tribe of Benjamin. Another point of pride for Benjamin was that the city of Jerusalem fell within the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. So all that to say, that's why Paul singles out the tribe that he was born into, the tribe of Benjamin. And that was a place of honor and superiority and, and a way that they kind of looked out of, you know, the, the rankings of the Jewish tribes. And then Benjamin was up there. So this is another way of Paul saying, look, man, you got, I got more confidence than anybody else because I'm from a special tribe. And then he says this, he says, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. What Paul means by that is he's talking about culture. He's talking about his culture. See, by this point in history, Greek culture had just permeated and spread throughout the known empire, right? Even, even though the Roman Empire was the leading empire at this time, it was Greek culture that spread all over. Everybody was into the Greek culture. And that's why at this time, the, the common language of the day, regardless of where you were, was Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. The New Testament written in Greek because it was the common language of the time. So Greek culture permeated this entire world, and that even infiltrated into Jewish cultural practices, man. And there was, there was a segment of Jewish people that were very much steeped in Greek culture, maybe by the way they dressed and the way they talked and the way they kind of did things on their own and things like that. So there was very much this Greek cultural influence. And Paul says, man, that's not my family. Not my family. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I was not in the Greek culture, man. I was in the Hebrew culture. Sure, I speak Greek, but I grew up speaking Hebrew. I learned Hebrew. I did Hebrew things. I was in the Hebrew culture, not the Greek culture. Again, this is a way of Paul setting himself apart. So Paul lists out, man, he's got a, he's got a very uh, extensive background here as to why he can and should have confidence in the flesh. But Paul doesn't stop with just his background. He also lists out personal accomplishments that would, that would be looked at as very positive in the Jewish lifestyle and culture. So he says here, continuing on in verses 5 and 6, look at this. So he, he says, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, then he continues, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So let's talk about his, his personal accomplishments that he lists out here. First, he says that he was a Pharisee. So within the, the politics of Jewish life, there were, there were two ruling parties. There were the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were very much looked at as, as that's the, the uber-conservative branch of Judaism. And these were the guys that were like, we're going to follow the law, and it's going to be strict. Like, we don't play no games with this. We don't interpret things loosely. No, it is letter of the law. We're going to stick to this. We've got to follow the law. Like, they were very strict when it came to that. So again, that was a, a positive thing at this time. And if you were part of the Pharisees, like that was top echelon, not only just in, in Jewish politics, but man, you were looked at as like, dude, you followed the law, like that you were righteous because you were a Pharisee, right? So Paul says, man, I was a Pharisee. You want to talk about following the law, dude? That was me. I was following the law more than anybody else around here. And then he says, according, or in regards to zeal, persecuting the church. Now, that word zeal has a special meaning. That, that word zeal, just on its own, points to intense passion or devotion to someone or something. But if, when it was concerning the Jewish way of living, when, when the Jewish people talked about zeal, they talked about that devotion to the Jewish law and Jewish religious practices. One uh, theologian put it this way, said it was a word that meant a fervent commitment 
to defending the purity of Israel's religious practice. And within that, there was this branch, you've seen this word maybe throughout the time in the Gospels because one of Jesus' disciples fell into the, the party of the zealots. These were like the extremists, man. Like they took the zeal to a whole other level and were willing to go to war, even against the big bad Roman Empire, to protect the Jewish ways of living and religious practices. So Paul says, man, you want to talk about zeal for the law? Dude, I was, I was demonstrating that by persecuting the church. And we see that in Paul's story. And you look at the story of Acts in Acts chapter 7 and 8 and 9. You see that Paul was one of the primary persecutors of the church. And that would have been looked at as favorable in the Jewish world. Because again, remember, Jesus' disciples were, were Jews. And they come along, and after Jesus is resurrected, and they come and say, hey, you want to have salvation? You want to be in right standing with God? Well, it's not necessarily following the law anymore. It's all about Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Follow Jesus. That's what saves you. So the Jewish people who were tied to the Jewish way of doing things, man, they saw the church as enemies. As like, man, they're coming in here teaching a false doctrine. They're teaching people to be led astray from the truth. So a good, zealous Jew would do anything he could to get rid of the church and get rid of Christians. And that's exactly what Paul did. He was a lead persecutor, putting Christians in jail, putting Christians to death. So again, you want to talk about a, a, a good, righteous Jew, man, Paul was that. And then he goes on and says, man, in regards to righteousness found in the law, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. Now, Paul's not saying that he was perfect. That's not what that word means. It doesn't mean that he was perfect and then he never messed up. But what it, it points to is, is what people could see on the outside. There was no one who could bring a charge against Paul that would say, yeah, Paul's great, but man, he doesn't do this. He doesn't follow this part of the law. As far as everybody else could see, the outward living of Paul, the outward practice of Paul, his obedience to the law was perfect. Nobody could come and say, man, I got a charge against Paul. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. Nobody could say that. So Paul could say here that, man, in regards to the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. I was doing everything right. So, man, Paul, if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. And he did. And he did. And, and in this looking back at his old life, Paul shows us a very valuable lesson. And that's that, man, we can be so led astray by our pride. We can be easily led astray by our pride, by putting our confidence and our hope and our trust in ourselves, in our works, in our actions, in the things of this world. We can be led astray by our pride. And then pride is so dangerous. Paul shows us, man, the, the the end of pride, it will lead you to self-righteousness. And that's exactly what it did for Paul. His righteousness was not found in God. It was not found in Jesus. It was found in the law. Or, or more importantly, his ability to follow the law. His obedience to the law. That filled Paul with pride, and it filled him with self-righteousness. And that led him far away from God. You know, pride is, is dangerous. It's dangerous for us. It leads us astray in all sorts of different ways. And you might look at this and be like, man, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm not following the law. I'm not a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I'm not part of any tribe here. What are you talking about? I'm not like Paul here. Sure, we might not put our pride in the same places that Paul did, but I mean, we, we got no shortage of options to put our pride in. We could put our pride in our background, where we were born or who we were born to or our family history, right? Like our family line. We could easily put our pride in that. 
Or think about our own personal accomplishments, whatever success you may or may not have in business or in your job. It's easy to put our pride in that. <clears throat> it's easy to put our pride in our wealth or our possessions and, and go, man, look, look at all that I have. Look at all that I've built. We can easily put our pride in those things or in our relationships or, or in whatever influence and power we may have in this life. If we're not careful, we'll start to buy into our own hype and we'll start to put confidence in ourselves and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, as Paul says not to do in Romans chapter 12. And that, that, that's easy if we're not careful, if we don't guard our hearts from that. So pride can lead us to some pretty dangerous places, and it can lead us to that self-righteousness, right? Like Paul was basing his righteousness, his right standing before God on himself, on his background and what he's done. And man, we could easily do that too. Maybe we think we're good with God because, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Travis, yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were Christians. I, I went to church as a kid. I'm good. I'm good. Sure, I believe in God. Don't look at my lifestyle and how I'm living. That, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Just, I, 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 was, I was born a Christian. Man, I've had that conversation with people. Like, I'm born a Christian. I'm like, no, no, no. Nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's born a Christian. That's not how this works. You can't base your right standing before God on what your parents believed or what your grandparents believed. That's not how this works. We can't base it on our ability to be a good person. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who profess the name of Jesus, and I ask them, and how do you define righteousness? How do you define your standing before God? Like, what's it based on? And like, well, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just trying to be a good person. I'm just trying to be a good person. I, that's not what's going to bring us righteousness. That does not equal a right standing before God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But so Paul shows us, man, it is so easy to be led astray by our pride, by these places that we put our hope and our confidence in, and it's dangerous, and it's dangerous. And actually, what Paul's going to tell us next is that it actually, all those things that we think are, are good and gains and superior, whatever it may be, Paul says, actually, they're nothing. Actually, they're they're nothing. And he uses a very stark word, which we'll look at in a second, to describe how nothing they are. So let's, let's dig into this. So the second thing that we see from Paul, we see his previous self-righteousness, and now we see his change to Jesus's righteousness. We see Paul's change from his righteousness, his self-righteousness, to a righteousness based on and found in Christ. So again, Paul tells us he's got every reason to put confidence in the flesh, right? If anybody could be saved by their good works and adherence to the Jewish law, it would be Paul. And Paul clearly tells us here, man, like, that's not how this works. So let's look at what he says here in verse 7. He says in verse 7, But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss. Let's put, let's leave verse 7 up there for a second. That, that, that word that it starts out, but. That's a small but a significant word in Scripture because that shows us a change. Paul did think one way, but now he thinks differently. Paul saw things one way, but now things have changed. Paul put his righteousness in one place, and now it's in something in someone else. But everything changed for Paul. Things changed for Paul. 
And that change, you could go back and look at, at Acts chapter 9, where Paul puts his faith in Jesus, where everything changed for him, right? Remember, he's this great persecutor of the church, putting Christians in jail, putting Christians to death, bragging about his zeal for the law, his blamelessness in the law, and then on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, to put more Christians to death, to put more Christians in jail. Paul comes face to face with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, everything changes for Paul. He goes from persecuting the church and trying to destroy and tear down the church to being a worldwide missionary, raising up and planting more churches. It all changed for Paul. Why? Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus changed everything for Paul. In that moment, he put his faith in Jesus and everything changed. Everything changed, including where Paul put his righteousness and his confidence. Everything changed for him. Everything. No no longer is Paul basing his righteousness on his background or his culture or his accomplishments in life, whatever they may be. No, no, now it's based in Jesus. It's not based on Paul. It's not based on Paul's works. It's based on Jesus and Jesus's works. And look, because of that change, Paul goes from from seeing all of these things in his life, his culture, his background, his accomplishments, he goes from seeing all those as gains to now seeing them as losses. And he's kind of using some accounting language here, right? It's almost like he's looking at a profit and loss statement of his life. And and in the profit column was all of those things. You know, circumcised, they they following the law, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, persecuting the church. All those were listed in the gains column. And then he comes face to face with Jesus. He puts his faith in Jesus and he takes all of those gains and he moves them to the loss column. And now the only thing in the gain column is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus changed everything for Paul. So what he saw once as a gain, he now sees as a loss. And not just a loss. Let's look at verse 8 now. Verse 8, he says this about all those things he considered as gain. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So Paul uses that word that's translated here. I use the Christian Standard Bible. I really love this version. preach from it every week. Um, He translates, or it's translated that that word as as dung. Your version may have something else, but but it's a pretty vulgar word at this time. Like, it really is. Like, I'm not going to deny that or try to, you know, uh, church it up in any way. It it is. That's a a great translation for what that word means. It's a word that that essentially means just, just garbage, just trash, It's garbage, it's trash, it could also be used for manure or dung, as it's translated here. So what Paul is saying is he's saying all of those earthly accomplishments, all of those things that I used to put my pride in, compared to Jesus, they're garbage. Street trash. Manure. That's what they are. When you look at anything that we can gain in this world, when you compare it to Jesus, it's garbage. It's trash. And it needs to be tossed out. Don't put your hope and your faith in garbage. Put it in Jesus. And that's what Jesus he says here. He's like, I used to see all this as gain. Now it's garbage because now I have Jesus. Jesus is his gain. He takes everything that he used to love and put pride in and hope in and confidence in and all that, 
and he gets rid of it for Jesus. And when he does that, man, he's not losing anything. He's actually gaining everything. Look at how he describes his gain in Christ. First, he says in verse 8 that, that because of Christ, he now views the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, as a gain. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That, that, that phrase for, for knowing Jesus, that, that means a deep personal relationship with him. This is not a, a head knowledge. This is not a Paul just learned some facts and some things about Jesus. That, that's not what he's talking about here. That, that word for knowing points to a deep personal relationship. He knows Jesus because there's a relationship there. Right? When we, when we build close relationships with one another, we, we know each other on a deeper level. Right? I mean, that's just what happens. I think about even in, in your marriage, right? Like there were, I, I knew Kendra well when we started dating and, and when we got engaged and when we got married. But man, you fast forward 14 years into marriage, 14 and a half years into marriage, I know her far deeper than back then because of the relationship, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. Those deep relationships that we have with people, where, man, we just know, we just know everything about somebody. That's how Paul describes his relationship with Jesus. And he uses this, this personal language that, that Paul typically doesn't use. He says, and it's just one little word, but he, he, he refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ, my Lord. My Lord. That's personal. Again, Paul doesn't use that language. I, mean, I think this is the only place in the New Testament where he refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus, my Lord. It shows a deep personal connection and relationship to Jesus. And Paul says, man, the value of that is greater than anything else. Just knowing Jesus, having a personal relationship with him is of surpassing value. That word for surpassing value means exactly that. It means better than and superior to. So knowing Jesus is better than anything else in this world. It's better than anything else that we could gain or have in this life. Jesus is better. And we see the language that Paul's using here, man. It, it makes complete sense why he would look at everything else and say it's garbage when compared to Jesus. And that's the mindset he's calling us to have as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. The next gain, or the way that he describes his gain in Jesus is verse 9. It says, and be found in him. So he gains Christ, and he is now found in him. That, that's language that points to judgment day. It points to the end. There was this idea in Jewish belief where the day of the Lord, right, this day of judgment would God would come, and he would bring the new heavens and the new earth. There would be a day of judgment. And on that day, if you were not found in God, then you should run and hide from God's wrath because he was coming to judge the unrighteous. And Paul brings this language in and says, man, I got no reason for fear because I know on the last day, I'll be found in Christ. I'll be good because it's not based on my works. It's based on Jesus and his work. So he will be found in Christ. And then lastly, he says here, look at verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And that's where this entire section has been building towards, right here in verse 9, where Paul says, man, I used to put my righteousness 
in the flesh, in the things of this world, but Jesus changed it all, and now my righteousness is through faith in him. And this idea of, of righteousness is a right standing before God. It's having this, this right standing before him. And the only way to have a right standing before God is to no longer depend on yourself and your works, but to depend on Jesus. That's what Paul's telling us here. And his dependence went from resting in him and his accomplishments to now it rests on Jesus and his accomplishments. So there's two ways that we depend on Jesus' righteousness that, that Paul teaches us here. One, we have a dependence on Jesus for salvation. For salvation. In order for us to be saved, we need Jesus' righteousness. It just so happened this week, um, the Bible study that we work with on our kids, um, it, it's walking through the, the five solos of the Reformation, if you're familiar with that. But, but we're in this section on faith alone and talking about our grace alone, this idea of, of grace and Jesus' grace and the unmerited favor of Christ for our salvations. We've been talking about that. And then the next section that we talked about this week was justification. Now, you go home and try to explain justification to your children. Call me. Let me know how that went because this was a struggle. That's a big word. This is a big idea, this idea of being declared righteous and and being righteous before God and justification and what that means. So we spent a long time just kind of slowly walking through that, and it was was a little bit of a struggle, but, but you know, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. But what justification tells us is that because of Christ, we have a right standing before God. Now, the reason we need that, and we know this, is is because without Jesus, we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. None of us are perfect. We all sin in many different ways, right? There's no shortage of ways that we sin. The Bible tells us that all of us, every single one of us, is a sinner. You, me, everybody. Everybody's a sinner. And because of that, we are to be judged for our sins. There's no way that we could be good with God on our own because God's standard is not trying hard. It's not trying hard. This is what I was explaining to the kids. In order to have righteousness on our own, we have to meet God's standard for righteousness. And God's standard is not being better than some. It's not trying hard. It's not your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds at the end of life. No, God's standard is perfection. And none of us could ever get there on our own. So because of that, we deserve to be judged for our sins. And without somebody else being perfect for us, we will be condemned for our sins. We will be judged and sentenced to hell forever, separated from God forever, all of eternity. That's what we deserve. That's what our sins bring us. But but Jesus provides a different way, right? This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus left heaven. He came, he lived the perfect life that you and I never could, and then he dies on the cross, sacrifices his life on the cross for us. He takes on our sin. He pays the the payment due our sin on the cross, pays it in full. And here's the incredible news of the gospel. When we put our faith in Jesus, there's this exchange that happens. Jesus takes our sin and then gives us his perfection and righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the imputed righteousness of Jesus. 
See, we have a ledger, right? We have our own profit and loss statement, and ours is all loss. It's all sin. Jesus takes all of that sin and then gives us his righteousness. His perfection, his righteousness is applied to our ledger. It's applied to us. No longer do we have a statement that reads all losses. It now reads all gains, not because of us, but because of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel, y'all. That is what Jesus has done for us. That's the only way salvation can happen. That's the only way we are justified, right? That's the, the biblical language for being declared righteous. Because of Jesus, now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfection. And that is for all time, church. That is for all time, right? It is not this idea in Scripture where we get Jesus' righteousness and then we lose it the next time we mess up. And God's like, oh, well, Travis, didn't read your Bible today. That's a strike. Oh, you, you know, you were, you were mean to the kids. That's, that's a strike. You were impatient with your wife. That's another strike. Oh, you yelled at that other driver over there. That's another strike. I don't really do that, y'all. Come on. I don't, all right? I don't. Oh, you, you know, you didn't go to church this week. That's another strike. Oh, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. That's another. Oh, oh, now, Travis, now you got a lot more work to get your righteous standing back. That's not what the Bible tells us. Justification is once for all time. When God sees us, he only sees Jesus' perfection. Our standing before God does not change, right? Our works didn't get us there, and it's not our works that keep us there. It is Jesus. It's him that brings us there, and it's his righteousness that keeps us there. So there is a dependence on Jesus' righteousness for our salvation. The second way we depend on Jesus' righteousness is honestly just everyday living. We need Jesus' righteousness for everyday life when it comes to following Jesus. We need it. We have to rely and depend on Jesus every moment of every day. And again, this is the beauty of Scripture, right? Jesus doesn't save us and then say, hey, by the way, living for me is on you now, right? I did the hard work of saving you. Now it's up to you to follow me and be in good standing and be a good Christian, right? And if you don't, well, then shame on you. That's not how it's supposed to work. We are to depend on Jesus not just for our salvation, but for following him every moment of every day. And here's how we do that. Here's the main takeaway here from this passage, is in order to depend on Jesus, to live for him in the ways that he's called us to, we have to see Jesus as the gain. We have to see Jesus as the one and only gain. We have to see him as better and more superior than anything this world has to offer us. We have to see Jesus as, as what Paul says, as being the surpassing value of everything, right? And, and what we just talked about, like his righteousness and his salvation in our lives, like that should be enough, right? Just remembering and seeing and knowing what Jesus has done for us, like he's done more for us and will do more for us than anybody or anything in this world or in our lives. That should be enough. We need, sometimes we forget that, right? So we need, we need these reminders of the gospel. It's good for us to be reminded and the other reason is, man, we can be so tempted and led astray by the things of this world. It is so easy, like we said last week, to be distracted by the shiny objects of this world. 
but in order to live for Jesus and to rest in his righteousness and depend on him. And we have to see him for who he is, that he is the gain, that there is nothing better or greater than Jesus. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Go back to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says this, and I love this passage. It says, therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not lose focus on what is seen. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, Paul here reminds us in this poetic language that, man, we don't live for the things of this world. We don't live for the seen, the tangible, the earthly things, because that's all wasting away. It is leading to death and destruction. Instead, we look to Jesus. We put our hope, our satisfaction, our joy in Jesus and in this incomparable weight of glory that's promised to us. But man, again, we're, we're so led astray by the things of this world. So to protect us from that, we need to, to learn from Paul here. One, we need to let go of our pride. And two, we need to let go of any earthly gains. We have to let go of our pride, church. Again, that is so destructive, and it leads us astray in so many different ways. So we have to constantly do this inventory of ourselves. We have to look at our profit and loss statement and look at, man, where am I putting my pride? Where am I resting in my own accomplishments, right? Where am I thinking that I'm more superior than somebody else? Because, man, that's, that's a danger spot for us. And we need to repent of that and come back to humility because that, that can do such damage to us. So, so where are we putting our pride? Man, is it in your wealth, in your possessions, in, your, in the job title that you have, or in your family history? Or, or man, when it comes to church, like uh, we can have pride in the type of church that we go to, or the type of denomination that we're in, or, or the theological stance that we have. I have so many conversations with, with, with guys who started learning some theology, and they think they're all of a sudden superior to everybody else because you have this one theological viewpoint. It's like, dude, come on. That... First of all, that's just silly. Like, what are we doing? That's silly. Come on now. But that is not what Jesus wants. I mean, he doesn't teach us to learn more about him and to be filled with the knowledge of Christ so that we can be filled with pride. No, that should lead us to deeper and greater humility, right? But we have these, again, we're so easily led astray by pride. So we have to let go of that. We have to put that to death. We're all led astray by that. We can all have pride in so many different areas. We have to do this self-inventory. Where, where is my pride? Where am I putting pride? Where am I putting my hope? Where, where am I thinking that I'm more superior than maybe somebody else out there? And then put that to death. It's dangerous. And then we have to let go of these, these earthly gains. Again, we're, we're so led astray by thinking that, that if, if I just had these things, man, then life would be good. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is great, but, but this, stuff, this stuff's great too, right? This stuff's really good. And here's where we can be led astray. We can start to believe that we're missing out on something because of Jesus. We think that because we're following Jesus, we can't do or have certain things, and, and we're missing out. And that starts to lead us astray, right? We start to put our hope and our satisfaction thinking that we can actually gain something from this world. So we think, man, if I just had a wife or a husband, then I'd be good. Or if I had a new husband or wife, I'd be good. If I just had kids or kids that actually listened to me, then I'd be good. 
if I had this job or that job, things would be good. If I made X amount of money, that would be good. Man, if I just got that promotion, if I just got that house or that car or that new tech or whatever it is, man, there's so many things that we are led astray from thinking that that, that thing, that person can finally give me what I long for in life. And we think we're missing out because we put our faith in Jesus. And what Paul reminds us here is, man, those, those earthly gains, they're not gains. They're garbage. It's dung, remember? That's garbage. That's street trash. That's, that's worthless. The true gain is Jesus. So what areas are we still holding on to in life that we think are gains? What areas do we think, man, if I just had that, I'd be good? Is it our wealth, money, our comfort, our safety, our time, our schedules? Man, there's, there, again, there's no shortage of things that we can put our hope and our satisfaction in other than Jesus. And Paul reminds us, man, that stuff is garbage. The true gain is Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 14, pretty starkly here. He says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes, after, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus did not draw clear lines, they're lying to you. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we should hate our family? No, of course not. He's not saying that we should hate our family. That's not the point. The point is, is if we're going to truly follow Jesus, he, he gets it all. He gets all of us, and he gets all of our heart. And here's the thing. When we do that, when we give Jesus our lives, again, we're not losing anything. We're gaining everything, and that's why Jesus tells us to do it. He wants what's best for us, and what's best for us is Jesus, is following him, living for him. So what gains are you looking for in life? What gains are you putting your hope and your trust in other than Jesus? Again, let's put those to death. Let's see them for what they really are and see Jesus for who he truly is, has the surpassing value that he is, right? We talked about last week, right? Jesus is that treasure in a field that you sell everything for because he's better than anything and everything this life has to offer. So Paul here walks us through this great change that happened in his life where he went from trusting in himself and his self-righteousness to trusting in Jesus. And that trust and that faith in Jesus made Paul see things for how they truly are, right? He saw his earthly accomplishments, his fleshly confidence for what they are. Trash that could never save him, that could never truly give him what he wanted. Only Jesus can do that. So what's our step today? Our step is to let go of our pride, to let go of these earthly gains in life and, and put our full dependence and trust and hope and search for satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and all those things that we long for and find them in Jesus. Let me pray for us, church. And as we pray, we're going to step into this time of communion, this time of worship that we have every single Sunday. And this is a moment for us who have put our faith in Jesus, right? This is a time for us to remember, to celebrate, and to worship Jesus for what he's done. So believer in the room, I want to encourage you, man, take some time, pray, 
Search your heart. Maybe do some self-inventory. Where, where am I putting pride? Where am I being led astray by pride? Where am I being led astray by the shiny things of this world? Let's repent of those and come back to Jesus and see Jesus for who he truly is. Maybe you've just been reminded of, of the goodness of Jesus' righteousness and you just need to sit and worship with him. But believe in the room, spend some time with Jesus and then as you're ready, you come to the tables. You, you take the cup and bread, you eat and drink and remember the salvation that Jesus alone provides. Remember his broken body and shed blood on the cross for you. Now, if you're here and you're realizing today, man, my confidence has not been placed in Jesus. My righteousness has not been placed in him. It's been placed in, you know, maybe I grew up as in a Christian household or I grew up going to church, but man, I've never truly put my faith in him. Or maybe you, you have thought that, man, as long as I'm good, right, as long as I'm a good person, as long as I try hard in this life, surely God's not going to sentence me to hell. Surely I'll get in because, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a good person, right? I'm a good, I'm a good husband, father, wife, mother, coworker, whatever it is. If you've been putting your hope and trust in that, I just want to remind you of what Paul says, that doesn't gain us anything. That doesn't bring us righteousness. The only way we can confidently stand before God on the day of judgment is to put our faith in Jesus, to rest on his work, not our own. His righteousness, not our own. So if you're here and you're realizing that, you're like, man, Travis, I, I, I thought I was good, but now I'm realizing I, I, I'm not. Let today be the day of your salvation, right? That call to salvation is open to all who would believe, all who would put their faith in Jesus. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes to go, I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm gonna trust in you, Jesus. So that's you today, man. Don't, don't leave without talking to somebody. I'll be hanging out in the back. I'll be here after service. I'd love to talk to you about this and answer any questions you might have. Honestly, anybody here would love to do that. Don't leave without talking to somebody. Right, let, me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, I, I, I thank you for who you are that you are of surpassing value, that you are the eternal, incomparable weight of glory that is for us, Jesus. Lord, you are worth it all, worth more than we could ever give. You give us far more than we ever deserve. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for taking on our sin and giving us your righteousness. Lord, would we live in that? Would we sit in that, Lord? And would we, would we follow you from that? Would we base our, our everyday trust firmly in you, Jesus? Protect us from being led astray. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We lift high your name today. In your name we pray.